Now a reading from scripture. It's from Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the thrones of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. In those days, a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The shepherds and the angels in that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This shall be assigned for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them.
My pronouns, ooh. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. Um, Merry Christmas to all of you. It is so wonderful to see you all here tonight. We are um, celebrating our first Christmas in this space. And it's so beautiful and it's so very different uh, from, from our beginnings. Jordy mentioned um, that we used to be at the Miramar Theater, which is uh, a very different type of venue, mostly hosts EDM concerts. Um, the insane clown posse came by while, while we were worshiping there. So, um, so I have shared a stage with ICP before, um, not at the same time. But, uh, but it's so, uh, so different and in some ways very surreal for Zhao to be in this place, in this building that has so much history with generations of faithful people gathering on this day every year to tell this story. Zhao is a different kind of church, relatively new, a church uh, that's still sort of an experiment in action, uh, as you may have noticed tonight figuring out how to do church together in a different way um, with different kinds of folks and different kinds of focus. And so one of the questions becomes, how do we attend to this story, this classic story that's told every year in a new and different way? This season we've been in a series, a sermon series on Sundays called Hark, and it's been about all the angelic pronouncements leading up to the birth of Jesus. And so we've been hearing everyone prepare for this birth from various different angles. Today, our reading is from the Gospel of Luke. And it's quite long. It's longer than we normally do readings on a Sunday morning. But even this is actually only just a snippet of this story. And it's one of the most famous snippets of this story, which is why we pick it to read aloud. But this story is actually quite long and layered and complicated. And I figured one of the things that we could do, instead of zeroing in on one piece, as we often do, thinking about Mary in one moment, or dwelling with the shepherds, what if we try and piece all of those parts together and see what threads together in this narrative for us when we hear glimpse after glimpse of all of these different people coming together, culminating in the birth of this baby who changes everything. So first, first in this story, we're going to start tonight with Mary. Mary is a young girl. She is engaged to be married, and at the time she would have been like a teenager, young teenager. And this was culturally standard in that day. She was engaged to be married to Joseph and was probably expecting a certain kind of life. It wouldn't have been a fancy life, but hopefully it would have been stable. She would have probably been a poor person. She's in Nazareth, which is kind of a backwater town. Um, so she's, she's a rural uh, person in occupied Palestine. She's, an, she's a Jewish person in occupied Palestine. At the time, Palestine was occupied by the Romans. And so there are these Romans who own everything, control everything, have their military everywhere. And Mary probably doesn't get mixed up with that a lot. She just tries to stay out of trouble in her small town. And so Mary in her small town is engaged to be with Joseph. And she's going to have a life there in Nazareth. Until, until one night an angel appears to her. 
Now, as we have learned in the series Hark, where we keep um, telling these different stories of angelic appearances, we know that the first thing that the angels say to Mary is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In this sermon series, as I was like writing all of these down, I wrote the phrase, do not be afraid, so many times in my own notes that I started shortening it to just like DNBA, which I feel like would have been a much more useful bracelet for me personally than WWJD, and probably a more directly applicable one. Because it's such a consistent message from holy message bearers. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. First, do not be afraid. And we learn throughout the scriptures other things like love, perfect love, casts out fear. And so we know that this story is set up from the beginning with a girl who is probably terrified for easily understandable reasons. Some creature has appeared to her. We have no idea what angels look like. The fact that they keep telling people not to be afraid indicates that they might be very scary looking. So angel appearing to her out of nowhere, out of thin air, and she's panicked. But she has other reasons to panic. She's a young woman, probably a teenager, who has a life planned. And this angel is about to tell her that all her plans are going to be turned upside down, her world upended. She's pregnant. And if she's pregnant, that's a big problem for her. That's going to disrupt her engagement, which means she won't be married. And then she'll have a child, so she will be an unwed mother. And in her culture, That is a difficult and sometimes not survivable thing. Economically, she would have been very deeply at risk. So not only could she lose Joseph, her partner, who she expected to have a life with, but she's going to lose all of the security that she thought she had as well if Joseph chooses to leave her. So what happens? Does Mary say, no, count me out, this is terrible? I had other plans, Gabriel. Tell God, nah. No. Mary, hearing from the angel that God has a plan for her and a plan for her child and that this is going to change everything and that this baby is important and that she gets to bring this child into the world. She says, yes. Her words recorded in Scripture are, here am I, the servant of the Lord, Yes, let's do it. Let's go for it. Come on, how, how is this going to go? And Mary gears up and she's ready for it. So the first thing that she does, according to the story, is go to her relative, Elizabeth. Because Mary could find herself very isolated in this situation. Mary is probably about to be an outcast in her own community. But she goes to her relative Elizabeth. And God has been doing incredible things in Elizabeth's life too. In fact, Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant and it's a miracle because of her old age. But this is how God works because God doesn't just break in at one point through one person, end of story. God breaks in through communities, through collectives, through relationships. And so God isn't going to put Mary in this all by herself. God's calling and inviting all sorts of people around her to do this with her. And one of the people that God has called is Elizabeth. 
And so, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant, pregnant with John, who becomes John the Baptist, who prepares the way for Jesus' ministry. Elizabeth is at home, pregnant. And when Mary, this young, pregnant teenager, walks in the room, John, in Elizabeth's belly, recognizing Mary and Jesus and God and all of the miracle and Holy Spirit of the moment, John leaps with joy inside of her. And Elizabeth says, wow, you are carrying the Lord. You are the mother of the Lord, and you have come to me. What joy. And so they celebrate together, no longer alone in their miracles, because God doesn't call us to experience God in isolation, but brought together in joy. And they have solidarity with one another and camaraderie with one another, and now they are journeying together. And it's in this moment that Mary finds her prophetic voice, and she begins to sing. She sings something that we call now the Magnificat. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And she sings this beautiful prophetic hymn. It's powerful. She says, all shall call me blessed. And she talks about how God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. And it's all about liberation and and newness and the way that everything has changed. Interestingly, she uses past tense a lot. She plays with tense saying, God has already done this. Even though she's in a precarious situation, she is still an unwed pregnant teen. We still don't know where Joseph is at in all of this. She's still in a very vulnerable position, and her culture doesn't understand her at all right now and may be poised to reject her, and yet she says, God has done these things. God has changed it all. We sing the song sometimes, Mary, did you know? And scripturally, Mary did know all the things about Jesus in that song because the angel told her, But we've been singing that song recently with a different set of lyrics. Mary, did you know about how the impact of your hymn, your prophetic word, would shape our hopes for liberation? Because this song that she sings, it casts a different kind of picture. This young woman from a rural town in occupied Palestine of an oppressed status over and over and over again sees something that all of us are longing to see, which is the world made right, the kingdom under God's rule, which is so different, which is nothing like kingly rule at all. Because the kingdom of God is not a monarchy, and it's not like the power, the oppressive power from above. It is power from below. It is power from Nazareth, power from the manger, power from Mary, the pregnant teenager. And she sees that in that moment before any of the rest of us could. So she sings. And I love that she says it has already happened, because she's right. It has already happened, and it is happening, and it will happen. And all of these things are true at once, that God, who is God of the universe, works then and now and in the time to come, that Jesus is here, Jesus has come, and Jesus is coming. And so, in the midst of all of this, Some begin to wonder, where are all the men in this story? And what do they think? Well, we do have to check in with them at some point, don't we? And Matthew, 
writes about Joseph. So we go to the Gospel of Matthew where there's a story about Joseph and how he's taking all of this. Joseph is important here. He's maybe not the main character, but God has clearly called him into a critical, supportive role. God has called him to be with Mary and to parent Jesus. And so Joseph is going, this is, you know, I don't know what Mary got herself into, but I'm a righteous man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the engagement, but I'm going to try and do it quietly. And so he's trying not to ruin Mary's life as much as possible. But he feels he has good reason to end this marriage. And so, so he does. He says, I, he, the scripture says that he decides that it's over. But that night when he goes to bed, Gabriel comes to him. Gabriel says, first, do not be afraid. D-N-B-A. And then the angel says, trust Mary. The angel says, this is a child of God. Mary has conceived of the Holy Spirit. Believe Mary. God has put God's trust in Mary. Now you need to do the same. And, and we see in another way, even from the perspective of the men in this story, how God is centering women. And in this telling of the story, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have this beautiful genealogy leading up to the birth of Jesus. Genealogies were traditionally just lists of men begetting each other somehow. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we have five women that get included in this genealogy in a very unusual way. And not only are they women, they're unexpected women. That list includes sex workers, and it includes foreigners, people who are not Israelites and not Jewish, people who would have been considered well outside the norm of the Jewish faith and the Jewish standards for righteousness. And yet, that is who God chooses to work through because God's standard for righteousness is different than ours. And God chooses to come into this world in places that are so different than where we would expect. God doesn't come first from the halls of power. God doesn't come first through the, the powerful and the mighty. And in fact, Mary already has seen where this is going. The mighty are cast down from their thrones as God raises up the lowly, like Mary, like Joseph, like Rahab and Tamar, these women that are part of bringing Jesus, the Christ, into the world. And so Joseph has a choice. Does he join with these rebels, these outcasts, these women, as God breaks into the world in new and miraculous ways? And he does. He says yes. He believes. He believes God. He believes Mary. He believes in liberation and the promise of this baby. And so we take our story back to Luke. And in Luke... That's where we actually get to the scripture that we read tonight, the census. It says, all the world shall be registered. That's a pretty scary-sounding phrase, especially, I would say, now in our current culture and political climate. All shall be registered. It meant something slightly different then, but only slightly. There was a census, and that census meant that, the, that Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire, had decided he wanted to count his belongings. 
And those belongings were human beings. And the way that those human beings had to be counted meant that they had to go to their hometown of origin. And because Joseph wasn't from Nazareth, he was from the line of David, from Bethlehem, he had to go to Bethlehem. So we can imagine how much movement there might be going on at this time. People moving across towns, uprooting their lives to be counted like cattle. That's probably not a very good feeling. And we actually know that those counts would have resulted in a lot of turmoil. It probably meant a raising of taxes. It meant more oppression. And it meant a reminder that Rome could even control one's movements. That you could be forced to go to Bethlehem. On a side note, Bethlehem, a town in the West Bank, is still experiencing controlled movement. There are many checkpoints around that town for the Palestinians who live there in occupied Palestine. And actually, the government, the Israeli government, said that they weren't going to issue permits for Christian Palestinians from Gaza to go to Bethlehem this year. They later rescinded that. And so these Palestinians can go on their pilgrimage to Bethlehem. But it's a powerful reminder of what happens when empire can treat people like cattle or like pieces to be moved, locked away in certain corners, stopped at checkpoints, not allowed to move freely to their holy places. And so they went to Bethlehem under the order of Augustus Caesar, who wanted to count them. In our own context, there are many ways to imagine what kind of conditions people would be experiencing that would be parallel. But we have this young couple, pregnant, forced to move across town at the whims of a government that wanted to count them, to register them, to profit from them. They didn't have the resources to put themselves up. They didn't have, apparently, family that could host them. And so they went on their own, with what little they had, because they were commanded by the government. There's been some incredible art made about this journey. I'd like to show you one piece here. Of folks who migrate as they must in order to survive. This is the Holy Family in transit. And so they go. They go to Bethlehem and We talk about the inn. There's no room at the inn. There's no place to be. Now, we don't know a whole lot of context about that, why it was so full up. Maybe everyone was there for the census. Certainly, people would have been traveling around. We also know that at the time, there wasn't like a big booming hotel business in Palestine. And uh, so it wasn't like there were rooms to check into everywhere. Inns would have been smaller operations, people who had an extra room to spare, an extra bed, an extra piece of floor, rather. And so when Mary and Joseph get there and there's no place for them to be, they ask around, there's no place for them to go except for the stable. And the stable would have been probably connected to whatever home was, uh, was occupied near it, 
The stable would have been sort of storage, a little more underground than we typically think of. And this in a day before there were other forms of transit than animals. In some ways, this stable would have been more like a garage, a really smelly garage, a really dirty garage. So they say, hey, we don't have room for you, but if you want, you can set up in the garage with the animals. And so they do. So this couple, nearing the birth of Jesus, takes the only place they can find in the garage with the animals. And in the manger, in the feeding trough, is where baby Jesus is born, wrapped, and laid. This precious, beautiful child. This God who has come to earth. This vulnerable, powerful, lowly, raised up, God incarnate, God taking on flesh, the God of the known universe is birthed into this garage with all of the smells of the animals and the sweat of the birth and the many other various smells of birth. Jesus is born and adored and doted on, and wrapped, and held, and cried over, and fawned over, and placed to rest in the softest place available, the feeding trough, as the animals shift around him. Meanwhile, there are shepherds. Still in this story, and in the Gospel of Luke, we have these shepherds. Shepherding was a pretty low-rank job, It was done mostly by young people. Shepherding at night was even worse. It was like third shift. So you had third shift, kind of probably, you know, the equivalent of minimum wage workers, young people probably, at night, watching over their flocks. Again, probably not the folks that we would think of as hearing the first announcement of the birth of God into the world. But God doesn't come through the expected. God comes through the unexpected. God has an eye on who God wants to invite to adore the the king of kings. And it's these shepherds. And so the angels appear in the sky. Again, terrifying. Do not be afraid. They say, we've got good news of great joy for all the people. And that phrase, all the people, is really important. It's used repeatedly by the author of Luke and and that same author wrote Acts, another book of the Bible. And this phrase, the people, is used to mean not just everybody, but the people who were oppressed, the everyday people, the working people. And it stood in contrast to the people in power. So good news of great joy for the oppressed, for the people who work the fields on third shift, This king is for you. This is your king. And he's going to bring peace. And it's going to be beautiful and glorious. He's going to be a savior, a messiah. We'll call him Lord. And all sprinkled throughout this is language that would have been highly suspicious. (laughs) That language, good news even, Lord, savior, messiah, these were all political words. 
When Caesar Augustus, the one who was moving everybody around like pawns in his game, when Caesar Augustus would make a decree, it would start with the phrase, good news. This is a royal decree, on par with what would come from Rome. And at the time, there was something that we refer to now as Pax Romana. Sometimes it's called Pax Augusta, for Augustus, this very Caesar. And it was a time of so-called peace in Rome. And there was a celebration that Rome had brought peace to the world. But they had brought peace by domination. They had brought peace by subduing everyone who would object to their rule. And so when these angels come to these shepherds and say, good news, we've got the real king, and he's going to bring peace. That's not just a nice, beautiful sentiment on a starry night. That is a powerful proclamation of a different kind of reign of God. That God, as Mary said and saw from the beginning, is going to cast down the powerful from their thrones and rise up the lowly, the people. And so they go. These shepherds go to the garage, to the feeding trough, to see Jesus, the God who has come, the God who is with us. And often we end our story there, at the feeding trough. We arrange our little pieces around our nativity sets. And we ooh and ah and sing Silent Night. But there's an epilogue to this story that I want you to know about. You see, there are three kings, right? Three wise men? Where have they been? Well, actually, we haven't gotten to them yet because they haven't shown up at this point in the story. We tack them on like they are with them at the stable, at the manger, but they're not. These three magi, who are really astrologers, they're mystics, they're people who pray and look to the, to the stars for answers about the divine. And they have seen something powerful and beautiful in the sky. They know that a king is to be born. And so they go to the local king, King Herod. King Herod wasn't Caesar. He was like underneath him. He's like a governor. So King Herod is the local ruler over this area uh, of the world that includes Nazareth and Bethlehem. And so these astrologers... These mystics, they go to King Herod and they're like, where's the new king? And Herod's like, excuse? And they're like, a new king has been born and we want to offer gifts and honor. And Herod like consults with his people and he's like, <laughs> no thank you. I am king. There is no new king. And so he goes back to the magi and is like, yeah, totally excited about that king you mentioned. If you could just go find him and tell me about him, that would be great, and I super wouldn't murder him. <laughs> so the Magi go off and search for Jesus. And they find Jesus, not according to the text, not in, not in the garage, not in the stable. They're not there anymore. They probably find Jesus at home. And it may have, the text indicates it could have been up to a couple of years before they find Jesus. But they go to Jesus 
They find Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and they do, they adore and honor and offer gifts, and they celebrate that this is a different kind of king. And that night as they sleep, before they leave, an angel comes to them in a dream and says, do not go back the way that you came. Do not go tell Herod. Get out of here. And so they wake up and they tell the, the holy family with this baby, with God, who is with them but vulnerable, with them but cannot speak, with them but completely dependent on them for safekeeping. And these mystics say, hey, you're not safe here. You have to flee. And so they flee to Egypt. And this is why, if you've heard the phrase, Jesus was a refugee, this is why. Because Jesus was a refugee, an immigrant, searching for safety, a child in the arms of his parents, hoping not to be pulled apart from them, from them brutally, but to find safety and safekeeping while their home was unsafe as they were being targeted by their government. And there are beautiful artistic depictions of this as well. The Holy Family fleeing on foot for their own safety and protection. And there they lived in Egypt for years until King Herod died. But Herod was after them and ended up murdering many children, trying to make sure that Jesus, the king that was coming to threaten his power, would be killed. And it was horrible. And Jesus had to, with his family, find refuge in Egypt. And then come home. And then, and then, and then. These are the origin stories. These are the beginnings of the person, Jesus, whose teaching changed everything. Whose life changed everything. We focus so often on the way that God came to earth as a baby so that he could grow up and die for us, to atone for our sins. But that misses so much. This story is so rich because God is upending everything and forecasting it the entire way. God doesn't come to us through the Caesars or the Herods. God rejects the false peace of domination, of government subduing people, of government controlling people's movements. God doesn't come to us through power or money, God doesn't come to us through fame or God definitely wouldn't have shown up in Nazareth. God comes to us from these places that have been deemed by the world lowly. God comes to us through women. God comes to us through immigrants and refugees. God comes to us to say, I am here and I am here in the places that you need my love. I am here in the places that you least expect. And part of our job together, because God isn't doing any of this alone. We, what we just heard was like a recruitment story. God saying, I want you and you and the shepherds and the astrologers. I want all of you in on this. Because we have new things coming. We have new things to do and it's going to involve toppling things bringing down the mighty from their thrones. That is what we are here for. And we're going to start, where do you think we're going to start? Are we going to start with military? Or are we going to start with the cavalry? Or are we going to start with weapons? No. We're going to start with an infant born in a garage. 
wrapped and held and adored by the one person on the planet who really knows what is to come. God breaks in and changes things through vulnerability, through trust, through invitation, and through love. May we celebrate this Christmas, this birth, that is happening now in our telling, has happened, and will happen in the time to come. Will you pray with me? God, you are good, and your goodness is surprising. It is inviting. It is government toppling. It is liberating. It is God with us. God, Emmanuel, we thank you for coming to be with us, recruiting us into your vision of a different kind of world. We pray that we could see what Mary sees. We pray that we could look at you with adoration, not from on high as your most powerful, but from the, from the ground, from the grassroots, from the low, at your most vulnerable. God, you have asked us to worship you in your vulnerability, in your infancy, in your dependency on us, which you chose to take on, that we all might be swept up in your project of love, solidarity, and liberation. May we see that, be invited in, and be changed. Amen.